Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Season of the Witch. You are listening to Raven and Stephanie Grimasi. That is true. Talking on topics of spirituality, witchcraft, Wicca, uh, magic. In fact, tonight's show is on the art of magic. A magical night. Yes. Uh, We have a lot of awesome things to cover um, to kind of discuss the idea of of how magic works, what the components are, um, your belief in it, other people's belief in it, the ethics of um, purpose of your tools, and uh, drawing in the elemental forces and the divine, uh, how that all plays into um, your ideas of, of the art of magic. Uh, before we get started, though, I would like to just uh, say a couple things. Um, first, Again, we have had um, great response to our request for musical artists to allow us to use their music on our show. And we are now adding to the list uh, the German group Fawn and also S.J. Tucker. And this evening's show, we're going to uh, actually be highlighting Fawn. And we've, we've, known, we've met Fawn several times. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only are they musically amazing, um, but they're also genuinely, genuinely authentic people, kind people, spiritual people. Yeah, they're very, very good folks and very friendly and, and, and down to earth. I mean, and I guess in uh, Germany and, and thereabouts, uh, they're, they're quite famous. They're not as well-known here in the States as they are over there, but they're very well-known here as well. Well, I was going to give you so, a little background on that. Yeah, them. that's really, really cool. I really like these folks. Yeah. So uh, just to give you a little background on them, if you haven't heard of them, uh, Fawn is one of the world's leading bands in fusion of old sounds, medieval, Celtic, and Nordic folk with modern music, and, and they released nine studio CDs and two DVDs. Uh, they were nominated three times for the Echo, which is the Germany's um, largest music award. And um, their CD, Van der Elben, has reached platinum status and was four weeks at number seven in the German album charts. And the CD, Luna, which is amazing, uh, reached number four on the German album charts and held a gold status there. So uh, they have a new release, which is called Midgard, uh, which is a German album, and it's on the charts at number three. And um, we would love for you to give a listen, if you haven't already, to Fawn's music and to support them uh, with their, um, their efforts in, in bringing some fantastic sounds to the pagan world. And uh, their website is uh, www.fawn, and it's 
U-N-E dot D-E dot com. So you can uh, go there and... and there's, uh, a, there's an E on the end? No, it's, hmm? it's... Yeah, there's an E on the end. Yes, that's their website. Um, so uh, the other thing I'd like to talk about, too, is um, I wanted to talk about our next appearance, which is this month on Friday the 30th, we'll be at Pandora's Box in Norwich, Connecticut, and uh, this will be a workshop that Raven will be giving, and um, it's going to be on communicating with the body, which again was um, mm. uh, 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 the impetus for that was, of course, his uh, working through um, his illness that he's had for the last year and six months now, seven mm-hmm. months, um, and and giving uh, talking about the process that he's gone through and being able to share that with other people, no matter uh, what condition your body is in, uh, it's it's good sound practice um, of integrating the ideas that you have three parts to work with your body, mind, and spirit, and and how they are divided up into that. So if you're interested in coming to that workshop, uh, just give um, Pandora's Box a call. That number is eight six zero. 887-4501 and uh, you can reserve a spot there because I'm sure there's still some available. This workshop starts at 7 p.m. And um, I'm still having, I say I because Raven's Loft is kind of my baby, ravensloft.biz, which is our internet store. We're still having our fantastical sale, which ends at the end of this month. And um, I've also added a few new items uh, to the What's New page. And, uh, yeah, some of them are, are a little pricey, but they're unusual items. Um, and they're although they're pricey, they're well-priced for what they are um, in comparison to what you might find elsewhere. So uh, give that a look. We, we'd appreciate your support in uh, coming to the store and, and taking a look at seeing what's there to purchase. Raven's books are all available there, and you can have those all autographed personally or just generally, and we're happy to also ship any items that you might purchase as gifts to wherever they need to go. There you go. Yeah. And one last thing before we get started on the Art of Magic. And what might that be? That is, this month is the anniversary of our filming uh, oh, in yeah. 2015. The old DVD. Yes, our DVD, which is Ever Ancient, Ever New, Witchcraft by the Harshside. Uh, we will be having a special on that coming up uh, probably the beginning of July. Uh, with uh, You'll receive this particular DVD with a purchase. So, so it's a free DVD with a purchase of uh, $50 or more, and uh, that will be coming up soon. We'll be announcing that, of course, on Facebook, and if I get my act together, you'll be those of you who are signed up for a newsletter on ravensloft.biz, you'll receive it through um, that uh, medium as, as well. And the DVD is a two-hour production, and it covers a, a multitude of topics related to witchcraft, paganism, and spirituality, magic. Um, uh, so we put a lot of uh, time and energy into uh, creating that DVD, so I think it's a really cool um, offer to have it uh, free with a purchase. Yeah. 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 I'd even get it myself. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, enough of that babble. So now let's get down to business. The business of the art of magic. And um, why don't you go ahead and, and I babble. Why don't you now go ahead and talk? 
Okay. I think um, we'll start off with the idea of what is magic. I've heard people over the years and uh, have different ideas of what magic is, what it's not. And it's a tricky thing because magic is really more or less the kind of the outcome, <clears throat> pardon me, or the technique of using what is really energy. So I also call the, uh, that energy magic as well. And the basic idea I think that most people would agree upon is that there is an energy that was certainly known to our ancestors that inspired them to believe that you could cause certain things to manifest, things that you desired or, or make things go away that you uh, were undesirable. And there was a way of doing it, and they were connecting with something. Now, whether they thought this was energy or whether they thought it was spirits or deities, you know, it's, it's sort of the core idea that there is something that you tap into which you can then direct or enlist the aid of um, to create a manifestation in your life. This energy is kind of pervasive. It's really everywhere in everything. Uh, we know from some ancient writings, for example, that the ancient Romans believed that everything was conscious. Everything had had an awareness. And um, they called it Newman, N-U-M-E-N. And Newman resided in all things. And you could draw upon the Newman of an object, the consciousness or power of that object. And that was an old Roman belief. I always found that interesting because... Um, Oh, many, many, many moons ago, uh, I worked with and studied under some American Indians. And they basically had the same core idea that there was energy in all things and you could tap into that. Um, I actually saw a shaman one time, an American Indian shaman, using uh, sticks or bones, I believe they were, and clicking them together three times and calling upon the power of whatever he was looking at at the time. So, for example, if he saw, you know, maybe a badger walk, walking across the, the field, he may click the bones and say, badger, you know, give me, um, and then, you know, whatever name he would use for that, uh, that power. Uh, he might look at a stream flowing and click the bones together three times and call upon the power, uh, the mana um, of the uh, uh, creek or river or stream. Um, seeing a bird flying above, maybe even call upon the power of that bird. So it is a very old, what I would say, rooted belief that there is this juju, this this energy, this mana, this numen um, that you can tap into. Now, the idea is in modern magic, you know, more art articulated idea of what our ancestors thought you, you have the idea of condensing this energy for your use because it's really everywhere at once, which doesn't really do you much good unless you can somehow interface with it, somehow grasp it. Um, so the idea, in, and there are many techniques, and I'm sure we'll talk about this throughout the show, but there's many different ways in which you can, let's say, scoop up this energy or gather it, collect it. Uh, and, and sort of pack it into something cohesive that you can use. I always personally envision this as a sphere, that you collect energy and you sort of mold it into a, 
a sphere, almost like if you had a lump of clay and you're packing it and trying to make it round. You're rolling it, you're pushing, you're squeezing it until you get the sphere. Kind of the basic idea of magic for me. And then once I can feel that energy between my hands, then I can transfer a thought into that sphere. Um, you know, maybe heal or, you know, whatever it might be, and impregnate that sphere with that energetic request. And then even breathe upon the breath, say the word, you know, heal or protect or whatever it might be, breathing that into the sphere. And then releasing that sphere into an object, like say it's a protective pentacle you want to wear, or you're doing healing work on someone, so maybe you would project the energy into a an oil that you're massaging the person with or, you know, whatever it might be, or just literally tossing it up into the air and seeing it go off in a, in a particular direction uh, towards a situation or whatever it might be. So this is the, really the basic core idea of there is energy. You collect it, you grasp it in some way, fix it in some way for your use, and into that, you transfer a thought, which is your desire, and then you apply that sphere of intentioned magic into the sphere and direct it where you need it to go. Stephanie's just nodding at me. Yeah, but of course. Full I am. agreement, yeah. which is always uh, Reassuring. Well, as any good wife, if I have any two cents to add, you know that I will. I'm, I'm just taking it all in as I always do. Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> I guess we'll move on and talk about kind of the components of this thing called magic. Now, we've touched upon some of these ideas in other shows and certainly in my writing, so this will probably be familiar, but I think it's a good review. And uh, maybe for people that aren't that familiar with it, uh, hearing it in, in this context may be helpful. Right, I think so. So let's talk a little bit about this thing called the elemental forces, which are the creative components. So in, in modern magic, we have this idea that there are these components, these creative active principles that are uh, air, fire, water, and earth, called the four elements, of course. Now, they are designed to lend a, what we used to say back in the day in old cultism, a virtue, which is a presence, a quality, a, a character. Today we would say resonance. Yeah. You know, back, back in the 60s, quality, quality yeah. of virtue was what we talked about. But it's a thing, you know, it's a quality. Um, and so we have the idea that of the four creative elements, they're all needed to work together in order to accomplish a goal. So we look at the quality of air and we see that as a transmissional, transmission quality. So air carries something upon it. It transmits very much like your cell phones are picking up signals from cell towers. So through the air, there's a transmission and a communication. So if you think about that, and we'll talk about different ways, but air is your ability to transmit both the intention into the sphere or to transmit the spell or magical work from the place of its origin, your creation of it, to the target person or situation. 
Um, so that's kind of a quick thing about air. Now, next comes fire. And fire is really about transformation. So it's another creative element that brings transformation. Fire changes anything it touches. You touch it to a piece of paper, you get ash. Touch it to a cold piece of steel, you get a hot piece of steel. So it changes anything it touches. So it transforms, and that's the idea. So you have one element of air, which is transmitting a, an idea or thought or the spell itself. You have fire, which changes it from a mundane act into something magical. You know, because I can say heal all day long and not get the results I would get if I add fire to transforming my word heal or my idea of heal into something that can actually do that. Um, so that's the idea of adding the elements of fire. And then, of course, we have water. Now, water is an important one because... It's about movement. Think about water in a stream or a creek or even in your faucet or in the ocean and rain. Um, water is moving and flowing. And so this adds to the ability to add things to your spell and move them through, almost like you're mixing something in a brew. You move that into your spell. And the spell can also help with the transmission of air. So by using water and air together, you have movement and transition, transmission, I'm sorry. So that actually is another way to empower movement of the spell. But you can also see it in the idea that something that's stagnant in your life or, or there's a barrier or a boundary in some way, using water would be a way of moving that, you know, out of your way or, or moving it aside or moving through it or past it. You know, it, all, it almost reminds me of a lot of people today are have a relationship uh, or rapport with Ganesh. Ganesh is a, a remover of objects, but, but a lot of people, obstacles. Um, but a lot of people don't really realize that he's also a bringer <laughs> of obstacles. Um, and uh, he sometimes brings them to um, expedite the karmic debt of some individual. So you have to work harder to move through what he's put in your in your way, and that burns up karma quick quicker. Um, at least that's what I've heard from some people that work with Ganesh. with Ganesh. And then they have the idea that if his trunk is pointed upward, he's lifting away obstacles. But if his trunk is dipped down where the, the tip of the of the trunk is pointed towards the ground, then he's actually placing obstacles in your way. To make you work harder to burn off your debt. Um, so look at the trunk uh, <laughs> if you uh, really want to work um, with Ganesh in that way. So moving on to the last element, we have Earth. Now Earth obviously is the end result, which is why it's the last on this list, because Earth is about manifestation. It's about making your thought, your desire, this transmission, this transformation, this movement solid, making it appear on the physical dimension. So you transmit the idea, you transform it into something magical, you move it through, and then you manifest it. These would be bringing the four elements in. There's an old uh, Greek story and that... In the beginning, there was chaos, 
and chaos was disorder. Nothing could be created because the four elements would not work together. They were all independent, off doing their own thing, not working in common cause with each other, not realizing that they were part of something greater than themselves. So they just kind of did their own thing. Um, then we are told that the fifth element, which was spirit or ether, ether, uh, entered into the situation and brought the four elements into agreement, brought them into a working relationship and an understanding and an appreciation of one another, so that collectively they worked for the greater good, which was creation itself. So when you look at a pentagram, a five-pointed star, you're seeing this whole principle actually in that symbol. Because if you look at an upright five-pointed star, that tip of the star on top is aether or spirit, divinity overseeing that which is below. And then each tip of the uh, pentagram, you have the elements of air, fire, water, and earth on, on the tips. And this represents that spirit is bringing these four elements into harmony so that you can create. So wearing the pentacle, pentacle is a statement of I create through the divine or I create through the higher self, however you want to look at that. But it's also protection because really the pentagram is saying to anything that's seeing it, spirit, entity, or whatever it might be, that I have the ability to create either protection, you know, opening doorways, closing doorways, whatever it might be. It's a statement. Among all the other things you can say a five-pointed star or pentagram is, it's, it's really a magical statement of the principle of magic itself, spirit over the four elements. And, and with that also comes the idea that that particular symbol, again, has been worn and used uh, in the same way for hundreds of years. Yeah, hundreds and hundreds of years. So it, it contains a lot of juju with that backing, with that behind it, the, the, again, the quality or the virtue or the resonance of that particular symbol. So right. it's a very powerful, magical um, symbol to, to wear or to wield even. Yeah, because if you think of it, it, it ties into the collective consciousness. It brings through the belief that has been shared and passed on in this particular um, object. Uh, the uh, the pentacle. Now, is there is there any time uh, during magic where you would want to focus in on one of the elemental forces, or are they always necessary for the creation to um, you know? I because you just talked about the cohesiveness of right. using them all. Is there any time when you would just use one for any kind of working? Yeah, I mean, my view would be that yes, you would you would um, choose one or more elements that relate to the specific work at hand. But the idea is to already be balanced with the four elements within yourself. And there are techniques in which you are elementally balanced within yourself. And because you are, you can then use a particular element to emphasize it and then return back to, to balance. But if you don't work with the elements and don't have that balance, and you predominantly use one element, then there's going to, to ultimately be a elemental imbalance, mm -hmm. um, which is really not a healthy thing to mind, body, or spirit. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's an important. You should look at that. Right. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, for example, I mean, um, if I was doing a spell and I wanted um, to 
create a movement of something that was blocking me in, in my daily life or magical life or religious life, whatever it might be. Um, I would call upon the four elements just as a magical charge. And then I would emphasize and work with water. I would pull out the idea of water. You know, I may de- do something even as basic as having a bowl of water and putting my hands in and, and pulling out and let the water drip down in so back into the bowl. So I hear the sound of water or pour a bottle of water slowly into a, a bowl and listen to the sound of the water and then think about movement, you know, give it a color, um, give it a sound, um, and then really work with the idea of that element. But then I would bring that back in at the end and reaffirm my balance with air, fire, water, and earth. Right. Kind of, that would be a good idea. So the magic user themselves needs to really take into consideration that when wielding or when creating um, any kind of working. Yeah, absolutely. You know, or, or within their art, of magic as a whole, right. that there be that kind of balance, elemental balance. Well, sure, because you know the any magical forces we work with um, that are around us are flowing through our aura, flowing through our, our own energetic field, um, chakras, centers, body power centers, whatever it might be, and they influence that. Some might say they stick to it or adhere to it or in some way change the resonance. So the idea is always to go back to balance. You know, after every magical work, you should kind of regroup and make sure that you return to the state in which you were before you used that magic, and unless the magic is designed to, to be enhancing, you know, something within yourself. But if you're using it as a spell to affect an outcome or influence an individual's situation or whatever it might be, then I think restoring yourself back to balance is a is a good idea. Well, and I know that there's a there the uh, tonals that we use, the elemental tonals that we use, um, are a good way to do that as well as mm-hmm. utilizing the physical element itself. For instance, like you said, with water, that you have a bowl of water and you're lifting the water up and you're listening mm-hmm. to that. But there's also that tonal that goes with that. Right. Along with looking at a fire, you know, a flickering flame, mm-hmm. you could be intoning that um, sound for fire, and the same with um, air. And, yeah, you um, could have incense burning right. and watch the smoke right. moving through the air, and uh, you could even blow upon the smoke and the idea of transmitting, seeing that smoke moving on your breath away from you um, would also be an idea. Can, do you want to do those tunnels real quick? Yeah, we could do that. Um, these these tunnels are very, very old. We, we didn't... Uh, we didn't. We didn't create them, right. or, or some people would say make them up. But they are um, in your. They're in your. A couple yeah, of your books. Uh, myself and other authors uh, refer to them, use them. Mm-hmm. Uh, R. J. Stewart, I think, or Ryan Foxwood uses them. Um, Christopher Penzek, uh, you know, um, a lot of different people um, have have um, joined in this kind of generational passing on of these techniques of, of consciousness. Yes, which makes it more powerful. That's right. Okay. So, um, air is the letter E. Um, so these are vowel sounds, basically. Um, so if you're envisioning air, you know, if you're watching, you know, blowing the incense smoke or fanning with a feather, whatever it is you're doing to tie in the idea of air, air is the letter E. And so it sounds like this. E. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the tonal for calling forth air. You can direct that into something or, you know, whatever it is you want to do. Uh, fire is the, the letter I, and it's I. And there's the transformational energetic flow of that tonal. Water is a little deeper sound. It's the letter O. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> sounds like this. O. Now we have a new microphone, so we're hoping these. <laughs> my, my, I might be off a little. These sounds are uh, coming across, and uh, it just doesn't sound like a, you know, a wounded dog in the street or something. Um, the um, the last one is uh, Earth, and it's the letter A, and it sounds like this. A. And um, there are people that can make that sound better than we can. <laughs> but hey, our magic works with it, so that's what counts. And you also can swift um, yep. energy by saying them all at once, which you do well. Why don't you do Right, you can do that. You can also use these sounds to call the elements of the four quarters, so you can individually do their tonal sound mm -hmm. when you call them. Mm -hmm. But you can bring all these four elements together, and you can use them, for example, casting the, the, your ritual circle. Um, with your wand or blade or however it is you do it, fingertips, um, you can walk across the uh, uh, circle, I mean walk around in a circle, and bring all these elements together through a kind of okay. swifting. Yeah. So you would just be, as you're walking around the perimeter line, you would just go, e And just repeat that as you traverse the round, the circle. Uh, and this way you're pouring all four of the elements into this, uh, to the boundary area, the border, the sacred space of your circle. And, and that's pretty effective. So um, before we move, now that we just did our little song of the mm -hmm. elements, let's go ahead and take a break and listen to the award-winning uh, music from the artist Fawn, the German band, um, and let's uh, have a listen to that. And we'll be back after this. Stay tuned.
They're just awesome. I really like them. Uh, we've we've seen them and we've seen Fawn in person several times. Um, yeah, and they have quite a variety because some of their songs are they really rock. Yeah. And then you have this beautiful you know style that we oh, just yeah listen to now. So so we listen to this uh, nice short uh, song by Fawn. Yes, that that song in particular is called Hem to Pan. Hem to Pan. Yes. So let's get back to magic. So um, now let's let's talk a little bit about the idea of whether or not uh, belief or disbelief in magic really matters. Um, you know, when people say, you know, somebody says, well, you know, I'll use my magic, and the other person says, well, I don't believe you, you know, I don't believe in magic, so it's not going to work on me. So how does that play out in reality? You know, there's different views that people have, but, you know, I, I tend to look more at occult principles or metaphysical principles. And so my, my personal view is that um, disbelief in magic really isn't going to be something that negates someone's magic. It's almost like I always point out, you know, people very often uh, believe a gun isn't loaded and they end up shooting themselves or someone else. Um, so the idea of belief had no effect on the reality um, that the gun was loaded. Um, now, it gets a little bit complicated because belief is a factor in magic. I mean, it certainly helps if you believe in magic, especially when you're first training. You believe in the techniques. You believe that these things can be done. You believe maybe in either the person that's teaching you or the book you're reading from, uh, learning from, that type of thing. So, I mean, belief is, is important, but old magic will work whether you believe in it or, or you don't believe in it. It's not dependent upon your belief, um, just like electricity isn't dependent upon whether you believe in it or not. You stick your finger in a socket <laughs> and the reality of electricity is going to be there. Um, so I think that some people, I mean, I have heard people you know, say to me, well, I don't believe that this person, you know, uh, that spell can have any effect on me because I, I don't believe in it. So my belief, my disbelief in it, you know, protects me from it even having any power over me. And, and, and you know, that's a, a comforting thought. <laughs> um, <laughs> but my experience has been that um, it really doesn't matter um, whether you <laughs> believe in it or not, because it is energy. Um, now, some people will say that, you know, magic comes completely from the mind. And I think maybe that's where this debate, you know, lies where people have this idea of, of, uh, of disbelief. I know we saw that movie. Um, what was that movie with the conjuring for the two? Oh, um, uh, skeleton key. Skeleton key. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was this idea. They were the, I guess they were conjure people mm -hmm. or whatever. Definitely. And in the movie they were saying, that if the person who they were trying to uh, use a spell against didn't believe in magic or believe a spell was real, then they would have no power over her. So they kept trying to get her to believe first in these things and then cast the spell on her. And I thought, well, that's interesting, an interesting idea. So this, this idea, again, of belief or disbelief, I think that some people turn to the idea of magic is in the mind that that's where it's generated from, that that's where it's directed from. And so in sort of that framework, I can see where people might think, well, if it's all in my mind, mm 
-hmm. and my mind is raising it and directing it, then if my mind doesn't believe that, you know, the coven down the street can affect me, then it, then they can't. Um, my personal view on, on the mind is that it's really not the mind that is the creator of magic or the generator of magic. It is the director of magic. It is your ability to mentally tie into what is the magic of magical energy and that through your thoughts and consciousness and your visualizations all the things your brain and mind can do um, that you're able to then wield the magic and so it's not that your mind is creating the idea of magic but it's certainly shaping forming and directing the magical energy itself um, so this idea of belief or disbelief what does the astral plane have to? How does that work in magic? Well, I mean, you know, I don't know that it ties in specifically with this topic, but it's certainly related, as all things are in magic. Right. You know, you've got the idea that a thought becomes a thing. You know, and again, this would certainly tie in with the mind. But the idea is that any physical object on the planet, and really any magical spell or ritual or anything else that can manifest begins first in the astral plane. Well, the astral plane is this idea of an energetic mm, quality or character, vibration or resonance, which is higher than material reality. It vibrates at a higher rate. Therefore, it's not solid. But it is the stuff from which things become solid. It's like if you had liquid wax and allowed it to cool, it would become hard and solid. So we can think of the astral plane almost like liquid wax. And we can think of the idea that a intentional spell, the intent of your spell, before it can manifest, goes into the astral plane, plane which forms all things and causes them to manifest. So let's say your hand represents the, the intent of your spell. Maybe it's a new job. You want a new job, so you do a spell for that. So your hand represents the idea of the new job. You project it into the astral plane, so your hand goes into the melted wax. Well, the melted wax in this analogy will form around your hand and create a replica of your hand, i.e. a replica of the desire. And because you have changed the vibration of the astral plane, in other words, made the liquid become hardened like the wax around your hand, it now must move away from its harmonious state, which is the astral plane, because it's no longer liquid in our analogy. So that hand would then work its way back down into the material plane, the symbol of the job, and then that job would manifest, or the offer of the job, or it'd show up in a newspaper, whatever it might be, because it's passed through the astral plane and a thought that was impregnated in the astral plane becomes a thing on the material plane. Mm -hmm. It's like when we talked about magic to begin with. If you can take magic from the land around you or objects around you and condense it and put an, an intention into that, you've really made a thought or desire become a manifested thing. So there is a relationship mm -hmm. certainly tied into the mind. Mm -hmm. So now, 
the next question would be, how do we work with it? Okay. And uh, we should probably remind people that we are taking callers. Uh, yes, and I mean, if, if you, you want to call yeah. in and join in on the, have a question or a comment, uh, we'd be more than happy to hear from you. All right. The number is posted in the chat room, but if you're not in the chat room, the number is 323-870-3856. And we want to repeat that one more time. 323-870-3856. Five, six. So there's no number if you'd like to call in during the show. Uh, okay, how do we work with with magic? How is it utilized? How is it wielded, directed, other than the idea we've already touched upon? Well, in uh, magic, we have these things that are tools that tie in. I, I like to think of the ritual tools or magical tools as ways of interfacing with magic itself. I always like to use the analogy to interface with your computer. You have a keyboard and the keyboard is really symbols. The letters are symbols and you use these symbols tapping on them rhythmically, which would be your ritual and you're transmitting these messages through symbolism to the computer and the computer will respond in, in kind to the message being sent to it. Um, so that's what magic's doing. It's responding to the symbols you're using and the energy you're using in the ritual. Um, so it's kind of like interfacing with your computer and having an exchange and getting what you desire out of your computer or whatever device you're using. So this is the idea of um, the ritual tools. The most common tools we find in, in what we call Western magic, cultism, metaphysics, is the wand, the dagger, the chalice, and the pentacle. Each of those represents one of these elements we've been talking about. They become the way of wielding that to physically have in your hands almost that sphere we were talking about before. Because you pick up, say, for example, your wand, and in uh, the system that we work with, wand represents air. In other systems, it represents fire. So what it represents to you um, through your experience and training is what you're bringing when you lift that wand up. So just to keep with a commonality idea here on the show, um, we'll use the elemental representations that we're uh, that we work with, but you can easily transfer these uh, to yours if they differ. So I pick up a wand, and this wand now in my hands is a way of me physically connecting with the idea of air, because my experience with my wand through my training and uh, and my feelings about it always represent what the power of air can do my having seen smoke moving and uh, in ritual and magic, or my feeling of the wind flowing when I've been doing magic, um, the idea of a, of a feather, you know, waving a feather during a spell's incantation, whatever it might be. When I pick up that wand, all of that comes back to me. All of those agreements of consciousness flood through me as I hold that wand, and that wand is allowing me to interface 
with the power of air and to interface with the metaphysical virtue or quality or property that I call transmission. So it's already working, you know, even though I've just picked it up in my hands. Mm -hmm. But really, on deeper levels within my being, that wand is already bringing that to the plate. And then I add my direction to it and and whatever self-enchantment I want to direct, you know, feeling magical in the moment to my wand and feeling that, you know, I'm going to do this or that uh, magical act or ritual act with the wand. So this would be the idea of... of, uh, uh, having wand uh, represent air for you. And then you could also pick it up and imbue it with the tonal. So you could pick up your wand and even before using it, you can kind of awaken, if you will, the memory within the tool. So you pick up your wand and it's and you're letting that sound move across the wand. So the wand's resonating now with the uh, the power of air. So that's one way to enhance it. And we'll go through each tool. So fire would be... Can I just ask you? Yes, please. I'm just, this just came into my mind. These weird thoughts come into my mind, so I ask. Um, when, when, well, when you say agreement of consciousness, mm-hmm. um, maybe there's people who don't really know what that means, an agreement of consciousness. And does that agreement of consciousness have... Does that also go with the idea of the belief or the disbelief idea? You know, like, I have hmm. like You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, the agreement of consciousness is a, is a bridge between you and the thing. Um, I'm not sure. I, I guess if you don't have an agreement of consciousness, um, then you're sort of borderline in the disbelief zone. Well, is that where the chaos can come in? Well, yeah, chaos? actually, we, we, yeah, we'll kick that around a little it. bit later. That's yeah. a good idea to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, well, just, there's no cohesion in disbelief. So, yeah, I mean, maybe... Maybe that is a, a part of the resonance of chaos. That'd be interesting to talk about that later in the show. Well, and, and can you can you um, have the agreement of consciousness um, that you you make an alignment mm-hmm. which will strengthen an agreement of consciousness that hooks into or resonates with a greater. You know, I mean, right. agreement of consciousness is that it's a it's a greater agreement in a more collective sense, right? Yeah. Can you say that. Right. So I mean, I, I'm kind of looking at the idea. Mm-hmm. So when you, when we were just saying, in our tradition, the wand represents air, and there's other traditions where the wand represents fire. So right. there are two different agreements of consciousness exactly. about the same tool. Exactly. Um, so there must be two different alignments that would strengthen those particular agreements of consciousness for that particular tool. Sure. The element that represents, you know, that for you is the interfacing reality in which you are connecting with and, and, you know, pulling this through. Um, But maybe we should just quickly talk about agreements of consciousness in general so people who maybe aren't familiar with that design uh, could better follow what we're talking about. I always like to to use the the uh, the analogy of um, you know you're driving along in your car and you look in the rearview mirror and there's a car behind you with blinking lights on top. Um, the agreement of consciousness between you and the police officer is that you're going to pull over. You've never met this cop before, but he knows that you know that, and you know that he knows that, and so you 
you both have an agreement of consciousness that has come from your culture, i.e. the magical understanding. Um, and so you, in most cases, pull over. I mean, some people do the opposite. They'll speed up and try to get away, but that's really not the wise use of that agreement of consciousness because that brings a whole other bunch of agreements of consciousnesses into play that you don't want. Um, so the agreement of consciousness is, I agree that this means this. Um, you know, we have, uh, uh, if you point at something, you know, without saying a word, people will look at what you're pointing at or go over there, depending on the setting, because that's an agreement of consciousness, these gestures, pointing a finger at an object, putting your flat hand up in the stop position. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to say stop. Mm -hmm. Somebody will stop if mm -hmm. they see you do that, mm -hmm. because these are agreements of consciousness. So when you pick up a wand, there's an agreement of consciousness between you and the spirit world, the other world, entities and whatnot, as to what that means and what it can do. Um, and so these are the ideas of agreements of consciousness. Pick up a, a dagger in our tradition that's fire because fire was used to forge the blade, so it remembers fire. The wand was once a branch on a tree that swayed in the wind, and birds who are creatures of the air landed on these branches. So this is why we assign air to the wand. Mm -hmm. We're looking at the, the environment in which these things came about. Um, rather than assigning something that, you know, is a little different, you know, because like I was taught that an element should never be able to destroy the tool it represents. So in my head, to assign fire to a wand, fire would destroy the wand and burn it. So to me, um, it wouldn't make sense for me to assign a elemental force to a tool that that force could destroy that tool. Um, and that's because we have that particular alignment with it. Yeah, that's, that's our alignment. Again, that's, you know, you know, and our, you know, not right or wrong. Come, yeah, no. It's just that that's how no. we come yeah. to... We're not saying that's if you, how we've come to our agreement of sure. consciousness. And the, and the more you work with those ideology. agreements, the more powerful they become. Right. But no, this isn't meant to say if you're not doing it our way, you're not doing it no, right. No, I, you know. no I, just, I just wanted to... Yeah, no, I think it's good for people to know that we don't feel that way. Yeah. But uh, we, we are rooted in our own magic, and that's how we use our magic. Mm -hmm. But the show is just designed to give you some thoughts and things to think about. We want the show to make you think, but we don't want the show to be telling you what to think. Um, so you were talking about the, the tools that yeah, you, so we had, um, you went onto the blade. Onto, well, we, I think we talked about the blade. It's trans... No, no, no. We are talking about it in the, in the idea of down here. Yeah, in interfacing. Yeah. That it's trans... So you pick up the dagger, yeah. and it, it was forged in fire. So if you envision flame or you move it back and forth and flicker the blade, you know, like a flame would flicker, um, these are ideas in which that agreement of consciousness resonate stronger because you're in the moment with that tool interfacing with fire itself even passing the blade through a candle flame is a way of remembering and aligning to the idea that i am wielding fire from this weapon that was forged, forged in fire. fire right um and then you'd have the chalice um you know which uh, one way to align with that um it, traditionally the chalices were silver and they represented the moon and really an older idea of the cauldron and the moon's light, collecting the moon's light. And the moon controls the tide, so there's a water connection with the power or light Even of the moon. Even the shell and a gourd. Yeah, shell and a gourd, all these things. So the idea that water is represents um, is represented by the chalice. So 
What I like to do is I'll pour a little bit of water in a chalice and I'll rock the chalice back and forth so that the, the water is sort of going back and forth, almost making like a little wave or ebb and flow. And uh, this allows me to attune myself back into the idea of the chalice representing water. So I'm interfacing now with that quality of water for my magic. And then obviously earth is the pentacle. So typically a ceramic or, or even um, stone, mm-hmm. uh, because it comes from the earth. Um, some people use wood, which really doesn't come from the earth per se, but trees are rooted in the earth and grow from the earth. So, you know, I can see where people might see an extension there and then have a wooden pentacle. Uh, we use either um, stone or um, ceramic. Ceramic, right. And uh, to carry that around the circle and present it at the four quarters is to announce the idea of solidity and manifestation. Um, to wrap three times, with, either with a tool or your, or your hand, fist, on the pentacle three times awakens the idea of manifestation in the pentacle. It sends out the agreement of consciousness to the spirit kind that goes, oh, I hear the sound upon the, the pentacle and I know about what proceeds now is all about manifestation. So they lend their energy to your work when you bring these tools out in that way. So these four tools then become the way in which we can interface with magic, just like a keyboard interfaces with your computer. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that connect with the elemental forces of creation. And and the description of even used as far as... Um, uh, the idea behind, for instance, the wand being uh, the idea that it is the branch, it's an extension, you know, it's it's uh, up in the air, it gets blown in the wind, it reaches up to the divine, you know, you can use that for direction. To use the, All of these alignments are also, I believe, are they, they in your book? Yeah. Um, I want to say uh, Wiccan Magic. Wiccan Magic um, is, is uh, one of my books that deals specifically with, with magic and magical techniques and, and concepts. So um, if any of this appeals to you and you want to know more about the different things we're talking about, that's certainly one book you can look at. Mm-hmm. Um, but my other books also deal with magic. Uh, the Witch's Craft deals with uh, magic and ritual techniques. Uh, that's not available anymore. Yeah, just one on a print, actually. Uh, I'm sure there's still copies here and well, there in we'll, stores and whatnot. Well, plus, we'll self-publish it once we yeah. get the rights back. So it's, it's just uh, Llewellyn's no longer publishing uh, right. that, that particular book. Um, so we are at the top of the hour. Would you like to take another break? Another yeah. song break? I think that's a great okay, idea. I think we shall take another break. We'll listen to Fawn again. However, it will be a shorter song and... Um, <laughs> This song is called Iduna, which is, I believe, um, I was told that is the name of a Norse god, goddess. Um, Mm -hmm. So let's have a listen again. And And when we come back, we'll talk about traditional magic versus modern magic. All right. Stay tuned. This is Seasons of the Witch. Season of the Witch. Seasons. Seasons, plural.
welcome back to Seasons of the Witch with Raven and Stephanie Gramasi. Thank you for joining us this evening. Um, we are talking about the art of magic, and um, we just finished talking about the connection of the interfacing and the directing and how the tools connect with elemental forces of creation. So now I think we're going to go on to the next part of that and talk about traditional magic versus modern magic. Yep, the idea of uh, magic is, is uh, ever ancient, ever new. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> you know, we had um, our ancestors certainly worked with tools uh, much more primitive than the ones we, we have now. Um, but we are basically tool users, uh, humans, and so we bring that into our magic as well. So the idea that there really were two forms, you know, you have what's traditional magic, which I would say is more rooted in the idea of the generations that came before us, the things that were time-proven and time-honored by, by those uh, users of magic and witchcraft, you know, whatever, whatever you might want to say about them. So these traditional things were tied in to the things that they saw around them in daily life. You know, I remember an old spell was from Italian magic that if you were to see a leaf fall from a tree or a branch break off a tree and fall or, you know, anything like that, um, that if you saw that, you immediately said, and so falls, and then you would name something. could be an enemy or a situation in your life, or but you were tying in the idea that that act could bring about a change if you could only connect with it. And so you connect with it by saying, and, and just as that happens, let such and such happen. Mm -hmm. It's a traditional way of using the earth and things of the earth. Um, you know, using, uh, as Stephanie mentioned earlier, maybe a shell um, uh, to be something that holds water or a gourd for you. And that became within your tradition that you used a particular shell, like an abalone shell, because that had particular meaning for you. So all the occult or metaphysical correspondences that we have that have come down through time have been things that our ancestors observed some association with. Um, if you look at, um, in particular, some of um, Agrippa's uh, works on magic, occultists uh, from the past, he has correspondences between this plant as is linked to this planet or to this hour or to this animal, whatever it might be. And these correspondences were collected. If they had consistency, then they were passed on. If they didn't work at all, they weren't passed on because our ancestors were pretty practical people. They didn't pass on things that didn't work, which is why we don't have a square wheel. We have a, a round wheel mm -hmm. um, because they figured out a square wheel didn't work and wasn't worth passing on. Um, but today, um, a lot of people uh, don't look at the traditional models. Uh, they don't look at the things that pre-existed uh, them and were used uh, by previous generations. They go with more of an uh, intuitive or self-guided uh, approach, and that you just sort of wing it. You just sort of try to feel it and use it. Um, you know, maybe you draw a little bit from this book or that book or this author's idea or just, you know, something you saw in a movie, whatever it might be. And you just kind of 
um, assemble it um, as you go along. And that was certainly the message we saw in books that started being uh, published in the 1980s and, uh, and on. You, you, you saw a moving away from traditional magic, from the time-honored and time-proven uh, ways of our ancestors to more of a gut feeling, you know, that this feels right, do it this way. Um, you know, if you don't like that, don't add it, don't use it. And so people were kind of reinventing the wheel almost, you know, sort of trying to figure out how magic worked and what tools you would use for what and, and uh, you know, how to go about it. Um, all that was already kind of preset in the traditional ways uh, of magic and uh, witchcraft that our ancestors worked. So you have the, the modern idea. And, and in that idea, I think intuition is probably the strongest component when you talk about uh, modern magic. What are your thoughts, Stephanie? Well, it, I was just thinking about the idea of the time-honored um, and our ancestral lineage and, and uh, time-proven, that the idea of uh, magic workers is using what is available here in this dimension um, on many levels, wielding the elemental forces mm-hmm. um, and tapping into those things that are available here. Like you were just talking about an herb, for instance. And then I started thinking about, okay, so the time-honored idea of, let's say spaghetti. I know now that there are people, because of, of um, modern ideas, um, that gluten, they're no longer going to eat spaghetti um, or they're getting gluten spaghetti um, because they can't eat regular spaghetti. And so now they're taking and they are grating vegetables. They're grating zucchini. They're grating summer squash. They're grating uh, uh, other vegetables into um, sinuous pieces that are supposed to mimic spaghetti and then they're making the sauce to go on it, and then they're serving it as spaghetti. It's not spaghetti. <laughs> they want it to be spaghetti. It's spaghetti-like. But it is not spaghetti. That, so I would, kinda, that was what was kind of going uh, on in my head yeah, when you were talking yeah, about yeah. that was, you know, these ways, the, the modern ways, the intuitive ways, yes, they will work, but they won't be, they, well, I shouldn't say, I'm not going to say won't because that's not a truth. <laughs> They may not be as effective as the time-honored, time-proven ways of doing things. I mean, that is why, as you said, these things have lasted is because they truly do work, and there is um, there is credence to them. There is momentum to them that right. makes them viable, very viable. Well, well, that's kind of the when I look at traditional uh, ways of magic, you know, I feel for myself that. This is a way of adding power to what I'm doing because I'm tying in with what it pre-existed and worked for generations and generations. There's a certain juju already imbued within that idea, like the pentagram, for example. That's been around for centuries, and it means what it means, and it always has. So when you wield that pentacle or pentagram, it already has a power that was assigned to it long before we ever came along. Um Whereas if I decide, you know, that the five-pointed star pentagram, you know, actually represents, um, uh, I know, coming up with, you know, I don't know, you know, represents a, 
the the letter G or the chord, the magical chord G, and that's all I use it for. Every time I use it, look at it, it's just the letter or tone key of G. Um, that changes what the pentagram is, has been, and what it's used for over to something that is unique to me, and I use it, you know, for whatever G magic <laughs> that I'm going to use it for. It's going to take a while for that juju to build up to where the effect I'm getting from it, having changed it, is as powerful as what it is from the generational current of energy that's flowing through the pre-established idea of what that five-pointed star is. Kind of reminds me a little bit of like what we're seeing now in society and culture is these fusion restaurants. You know, where, you know, if you go to a Mexican restaurant or a Chinese or Italian, you pretty much know what you're going to get because it's generational. This is Italian food. This is Mexican food. This is Chinese food. And if that's what you're in the mood for and that's the experience you want to have, then you go there. To me, that would be traditional. You're going for a traditional experience. Whereas fusion would be the idea of anything goes. So I walk into a fusion restaurant. I don't really know what I'm going to get. I'm going to get the chef's idea of what spaghetti is or a taco is. Or, a, or even a, 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 you a know, steak. A steak or whatever. You know, I don't know. You know, um, Because they're pulling in things that they thought, hey, let's try this. Or, hey, this might be a great idea. Or... Hey, a lot of people don't like this ingredient, so let's just pull that well, out. Well, it's the idea of fusing the flavors together, so they're right. taking all of these different right. things you, you would never really put right. together and fusing them together. Yeah. But they often call them like um, you'll see, uh, you know, French fusion or right. Chinese fusion. Right. So right. right away they're telling you this is not traditional. <laughs> don't come here for that experience. That's right. Um, and I guess you know it's kind of like in magic if I'm running a, a coven. I'm using traditional magic. If someone wants to come in with a, a fusion version, it's basically, you know, don't don't come into this magical working because mm-hmm. this is traditional. Mm-hmm. Go down the street to Joe's Fusion Coven and <laughs> and and work that. You know, uh, just you know, we're not we're not saying one's superior to the other. We're just talking about practicality. Um, you know, I've seen people, you know, I've seen people with very little. Uh, magical or ritual training, you know, do some pretty profound energy work, you mm-hmm. know, and they weren't trained in, in the traditional ways. I wouldn't say that they were, you know, pulling it out of their butt in the moment, but they were drawing upon some things that had worked for them. Um, but the idea is that uh, getting the magic to work for you, you know, and consistently. To me, I find more results with traditional methods than I do if I'm just, you know, whipping it up in the moment. And and I do sometimes whip it up in the moment. Um, you know, I've done that, and, and usually I'm trying to adapt to something that's changed. Mm-hmm. Or I'm out somewhere and I have very little of traditional things with me, so I will improvise. Um, but I, I, for myself, I never replace that. I don't then stop using you know, the traditional stuff. Right. I always make the joke, you know, people will say to me, oh, you know, Raven, I've been practicing magic for years and years and I don't need tools anymore. And I say, yeah, I, I get that. You know, I can I can do magic without the, uh, the four tools. Um, I just find that the tools make the experience better. You know, for example, I could eat a plate full of spaghetti, 
just by shoving my face into the plate and slurping up the noodles. I can still have the spaghetti meal. But if I use a spoon and fork, my tools, I have a different experience with that plate of spaghetti. I'm still ending up having eaten spaghetti, but the experience was quite different for me. Mm-hmm. And probably, you know, people watching me, you know, it was probably less pleasant to see you stuff your face in a bowl of spaghetti and slurp it up than watching you eat Let it. Let alone the aftermath. The, yeah, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, these are just things you want to take into to, to account or consideration when you're looking at these ideas. But And, and for those of you who, who may be new to Raven and myself, we are old world. We call ourselves old world witches. We, yeah, we call ourselves the root tenders, yeah. tending the roots. And sometimes we call ourselves old stick in the mud, which is yeah, because you know we really we really do feel um, very much um, married in our agreements of consciousness with the old ways. Um, they have been very effective for us, and they continue to be. And um, you know what we see in nature really mirrors to us uh, these still these concepts and these ideas, and uh, so that's kind of where our paradigm, our enchanted worldview, is formed mm-hmm. from. And you know, these are the roots of magic. And so I always liken everything, you know, to like a great tree. And you have the roots of the tree, nourish that tree and hold it in place. The trunk and the branches, the leaves and the flowers in each season um, are the new practitioners, the new ideas, the new thoughts budding and springing and flowering. And that's great. But if there is no one to tend those roots, if nothing tends the roots, nourishes them, feeds them, cares for them, the whole tree will die. And so there must always be root tenders, those who can take care of the rootedness. And so our work is really to to keep talking about the rooted ideas and the, the uh, time-honored and time-proven, not that they're superior, not that the way we're waving them about and go, oh, geez, look at us, you know. Um, we're just saying that we're tending the roots so that the tree thrives. Other people become the flowers or the new fruit or the new branches, and that's great. And we have a tree that's healthy and growing because we're all part of that process. But if the roots die, the tree goes with it. So that's why we feel it's really important to teach rootedness of magic, of ritual. And uh, that's what my my books are actually all about, is uh, uh, being a root tender of the old magic and uh, traditional techniques. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of chaos, and I don't want people to misunderstand me. I've I've spoken uh, here and there about chaos magic, and people have mistakenly thought that I'm talking about chaos magic as you would find it if you were to Google it. And if you Google it, the primary definition is going to be working with sigils uh, based upon some old models, uh, Austin Spar. Um, and others who used uh, different uh, images and ways of creating sigils to create a magical effect. That's not what I'm talking about. When I'm talking about chaos magic, I'm talking about this idea that I hear from people that uh, you can change your worldview, your agreement of consciousness, if you will, on a daily basis. Um, as though nothing is cohesive, everything is negotiable. Um, so, for example, a chaos magician, in, in my definition that I'm using here specifically for the show, would be somebody who on Monday decides that the chalice represents water 
Um, then on Tuesday, it's earth. You know, Wednesday, it's fire. Um, this day, it's that color. The other day, it's this color. One day, it's made of this substance, and the other day, it's made of that, because that's what they needed it to be for their particular shifting to a different magical thing that they want to accomplish. Um, and no offense to anyone that uses that, I, I see that as problematic because there's really no cohesion and there's really no true strong belief that's carrying the practitioner because they're just shifting things, um, you know, in the idea of the will of the moment. And yes, will is part of magic, the magical will. But again, there, there, there are no standards in that. There is nothing that that stands against the winds of adversity in that um, because it's just a shifting belief that's just in the moment. Uh, how strong is that? Um, how, how well can that stand the test of anything thrown against it? You know, for example, if I'm using magical wards um, in my home and I'm charging them with the elements um, that specifically mean things that have, they've always meant so they have the power of that momentum of the past, if I'm doing that and I'm using time-honored techniques of gestures and colors and sounds and incense and all that, there's a really strong juju on that. But if I have wards around my house that one day are empowered by this and then the next day I disregard that idea and I throw in a different idea um, and anything's coming against me, how strong is my magic on any given day? How strong is my magic in any given moment of a mood that I was in? Um, so I rely upon the old magic because it, it stands by my side and empowers me and shields me. If I'm weak, it's strong. If I'm in a bad mood, it's in a great mood. If I'm, you know, feeling a little wary or weary, um, it's steadfast. Um, I can rely upon it. It's one of the reasons I say if you make potions... Um, or herbal blends that have a specific purpose. Make them when you are at your best. Make them when you feel the strongest and most vital. And put those in your herb cabinet to use when you are not feeling well and you need to do a healing. When you are really exhausted but you need to work magic on someone's behalf or your own behalf, you've already got that energy stored in that oil, in that blend of herbs, whatever it might be, the juju of when you were strong and focused is already in those. And that would be the idea of the traditional magic is like that. It's already packed in there for you. Um, and when you need it and aren't empowered yourself in the moment due to whatever, you can rely upon it. I'm not sure that I could rely upon just sort of pulling something, you know, out, you know, quickly right. in the moment and, and hoping, you know, that it's enough because I didn't rely upon what I really knew to be steadfast sound magic. Well, and we do teach that when you're ill or um, overly emotional, angry, or something, you know, something, some kind of crisis is happening, that it's not a good time to do magic um, necessarily or do ritual. Um, and on eclipses, too, uh, we usually suggest not doing um, magic because right. it's, eclipsing your magic yeah there's a there's a they call it a tremor in, world. tremor in the force yeah <laughs> um you know with the idea that our ancestors who knew really nothing about these material objects you know 
um, they would have seen it as a bad omen to see the light of the, of the moon being blotted out or the light of the sun being blotted out um, outside of its natural cycle. They would have thought something was wrong. Um, and so, you know, there is as much ancient folly as there is ancient wisdom. Um, that's why you have to kind of look at it. You know, the idea our ancestors at one time believed the, the earth was flat. And that model doesn't serve us in, in modern times. You know, there are still some people that believe the world is flat and they represent a particular political party that hey. we won't talk about because that would be rude and insensitive. So we won't even mention no, won't. the idea that I just mentioned. No. Um, so um, anyway, I think we should. How are we doing on time? Because I would like to get into the components of magic. But well, it's, it's a little late. Yeah, we're gonna. Uh, it's five. It's five minutes before the top or the end of this hour. So let's let's go ahead and take the break now. And then we can finish up the show with you talking about the Okay, music. I still wanted to talk about counter magic and the ethics of magic. Yeah, well, you will and have about a half hour to do that. Unless you just won't, don't want to, we don't have to listen to a song. If you want to just continue. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, why don't we just, uh, why, don't so we keep, why don't we keep talking? Let's keep talking, okay. Uh, maybe maybe people have tuned in more for the talk than the music. Okay. Oh, no. Yeah, well, let's go ahead then. Okay, so let's continue. Um with the idea, well, in fact, let's let's pass up components of magic for the time being, mm-hmm. and let's move on to counter magic and the ethics of using magic. Okay. That's always a a good topic that uh, both uh, delights and disturbs people, <laughs> <laughs> vindicates, encourages, and uh, offends and insults. So and we've, we've got it all for you here in this next uh, all right. <laughs> few moments. Um, Stephanie's giving me the hairy eyeball because she doesn't like my humor sometimes. That's the difference between uh, Mars and Venus. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about counter magic (laughs) and the ethics of magic. Um, Counter magic is basically defending yourself trying to undo what's been done against you. Um, Fighting back, some people might say, is the idea of counter magic. Now, we find in some systems um, the idea of harm none. Uh, This shows up in some Wiccan groups' um, views. And some people take it to the extreme, and they will say that Harm none is literally means that you do absolutely nothing that in any way whatsoever would be harmful to anyone or anything. Other people look at harm none as more of a guideline that you should try to avoid harming uh, anyone, that in your spell and magical preparation, you make a statement, you know, that this is not designed to harm anyone or anything, you know, and you're, you're doing almost a... Um, a prayer or a writer that carries into that magic that is not my intent to harm. Let this happen if it harms none. Um, if it harms someone, then let it not, you know, be a work of magic. So some people look at that and, and they practice that. And, and the people that that adhere to that usually pre- feel pretty strong about that. And so um, it's usually not something they uh, they want to debate. 
Um, other people look at it as uh, some people don't even have the idea of the harm none as part of their magic. Um, I, I don't believe personally that if you were to go back in ancient times that you would find the harm none philosophy. It certainly doesn't show up in any ancient culture in the way they treated other cultures or even their own kind. Uh, uh, so, you know, it may be a spiritually evolving idea, but it certainly isn't ancient thought. Uh, most witches are kind of like creatures of the wild. You know, they just want to be left in peace. Don't disturb them. They, they go about their business. So corner them, leave them no avenue of escape, and, and usually that's, that becomes problematic. Um, the one law that I was taught about magic um, is the oldest one I've ever known, and it's therefore been with me the longest, and I, I, I give it much consideration, is the old witch law that we never harm the innocent. Now, if you've heard our radio shows before, you've probably heard us I touch on that, sure. that idea. Okay. It's worthy of repeating in this context. We say that we do not harm the innocent, but then we define what is an innocent. Well, an innocent is someone who does not provoke you. Provoke you and they've lost protection of being innocent because they've, they're not innocent anymore. They've, they've provoked you. They've taken an action. Um, so they no longer have the protection of being innocent, and then that allows you to deal with whatever they're trying to do to you. The idea is to never draw first blood. That's my magical code. I never strike out at anyone in any way who has not provoked that, who has not made it necessary to do so. Um, and that's my code and has been my code and always will be my code. Um, so that's one of the ideas of ethics. Now, the thing in counter magic, when you get into the deeper levels, some people aren't aware of this. But when you cast a spell or work of magic, particularly if it connects to another individual, it carries with it a, a traceable thread of magic. It's almost like a vapor that's left behind. Um, it reminds me a little bit of the old Star Trek show, you know, when they would be able to they would see these remnants of where someone had gone into warp drive or, you know, whatever, you know, it left a trace and, uh, and you can tell where they were and where they went. Um, and magic's like that. If you know some of the techniques of counter magic, you can send magic right back along that, that, um, that thread. Um, you don't have to, you know, just sort of blindly go return to sender, you know, and, and send the spell out your window. You can actually tie in energetically to where that came from and then just sort of wrap it up on the other end. Um, so counter magic, I think, is important. I, I, uh, I was always told, especially uh, with magic, but also with the idea of, you know, herb, herbal uh, work that, you know, you need to know the levels that are harmful just as you need to know the levels that are uh, beneficial or benevolent because you need to know where that border is. Where is that line? So if you're doing an herbal brew, you need to know how much is too much of that herb to use because of its toxic qualities. It's not that you're trying to harm someone and therefore you study the baneful you know, aspects of that herb. No. You're looking at, I need to know how much is too much. I don't want to overdose 
So I need to know the good and the bad right. levels. Right. And that's the same with magic. Counter magic is knowing the good and the bad of magic so that you can adjust yourself to the work that needs to be done. I'm of the particular mind that you should never allow anyone to attack you magically so that you have to day after day charge your wards and wear extra protection and just sit there and sort of take it as they pummel you. Um, to me, as an old world witch, that, that just doesn't make sense. Why should I allow someone's idiotic moment to disturb my peace or the peace of those around me? Um, so, you know, that's the way I look at counter magic. I, I think you need to know it, know when to use it and know when to not use it. That becomes your ethic. Magic is just energy. You know, it's just the idea like a, a knife is neither, you know, a harmful thing or an unharmful thing. It's the wheel. Whatever it ends up being in the hands of the user, the user determines whether the knife is a way to, to whittle a new toy from your kid or, you know, to stab somebody who's, you know, attacking you or whatever it might be. Um, so the, the tool is not the evil thing or the negative thing. It's the user's result that they have in mind that puts that quality into the tool. Mm -hmm. um, so again, the, the ethics, are, you know, a gun is neither good nor bad. It's how someone uses that gun, which is good or bad, in, in our agreement of consciousness about that kind of thing. Anything you want to add to that, uh, idea of counter magic or well I, I, I was hoping you're going to talk about that having to not uh, do the protection day in and day out and again right. this is where time honored techniques come in is that when you need to call upon something that will be effective there's nothing more effective for that I have found than use, utilizing things that come from that that uh, agreement of consciousness, ley yeah. line, that uh, the momentum of the past, when something has been done time and again over centuries, exactly the same way, for instance, you know, showing, like the pentagram, again, let's use that, that that particular symbol has been imbued with this same idea about it and its purpose and its use um, that when it is again invoked as a protective amulet, that the crescendo comes falling down upon it from the past, all that has been called upon it before comes to your aid mm -hmm. in, in that moment where you are invoking that same thing, right. an incantation, or you're holding that amulet in your hand and you're tracing it and you're encanting um, you know uh, a spell on it or a right. charm on it or a blessing on it or a charge on it any of those things that that's where the that, that that's where it comes in the the old time honored and time proven techniques well it's ever present and so you can rely upon it you certainly can and when for instance, and when you go, let's let's say you have a, a stained glass pentagram hanging in your window, and you have charged that pentagram um, with it being a ward, and you hang it in your window. Every time you look at that pentagram, you go, yep, it's there. Yeah, it's doing its job. I mean, you don't, in other words, you know that it's 
in place and that it's happening. Right. And, and you don't have to every day go and, and re recharge. It. That's right. Right. Same thing with the ritual circle. I mean, magicians, witches, and whatnot, have been casting circles on the ground for, you know, centuries and centuries. And so by simply drawing your circle on the ground, you've already brought a great deal of power to that the circle. Resonating with what it's always been. It, it, it's like everything knows what that is when you trace it. Um, but, you know, the intuitive thing is then to add your own energy to that time-honored, time-proven techniques. Right. That's why, like, you know, in, in circle casting, where you, where you have a traditional way of casting your circle and, and calling the quarters and all these things, um, you can, in between those individual steps, add your own intuition. You know, I always use the example, if step one um, of casting a circle is, you know, trace your circle and walk to the east quarter, well, that's your traditional walk to the east quarter, but it doesn't tell you how to walk. It doesn't tell you that, you know, you could walk any way you want to walk to get there. You could toss rose petals on the ground if you wanted to. This would be your intuitive thing or what you want to individually bring to the time-honored, time-proven moments of a cast circle. So traditional ways don't bind you. They're not shackles. They're, they're just ever-present and there for you to, to lean on because they're always empowered uh, no matter what condition you're in. They're in a, in a, in, in a more powerful position. Um, so don't ever think that, you know, the idea is that tradition negates intuition, spontaneity, or, or you know, an independent uh, uh, way of being a witch or a magician. It, it doesn't. We're just emphasizing, you know, um, the, the strength that you can add to your own practice by looking at these traditional ways. Do you um, have some books that you could recommend? That, like you, you mentioned Agrippa earlier, um, that people could go and read for some of that um, well, a lot of the books by uh, William Gray, there's Ritual Methods, I think, was one of the books that he has. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm drawing blank on some of the modern popular uh, authors to name their titles. I know that they're writing, you know, along these ways as well, but it's just unfortunately skipping my mind. I wasn't... Well, maybe you can post them on your, uh, on your uh, page on Facebook. Yeah, maybe on my wall. I'll, I'll sit down and think about it because I'd, yeah. I'd like to not skip anybody. And uh, and and call the the wrong book, you know, because um, I'm sort of focused on the moment, so I'm, I'm yeah. switching gears here. And That's okay. I just I just think it would be a good idea if we yeah. just give people some references. I think it's a great That's idea. That's not my forte, folks. That's a great idea. Um, um, so, so did you want to go to talk about a little bit about the components? Yeah. What uh, we're, what time? How much time do we left? We've got on the 20 show? minutes. 20 minutes yeah. on the show. Um, yeah. Let's briefly touch upon them. Um, these are the components of magic. So these would be traditional methods um, that are, are, are um, elements or components of how to have consistently effective magic. So they run um, five basic components, personal will, timing, imagery, direction, and balance. So these are things you want to think about when you're designing a, a spell or a work of magic. So the will is about directing the force. Once you've collected energy, directing that with your mind. 
you have to be sufficiently motivated. The stronger the need for the results of that spell, the more likely it is that the power you can raise will be in your hands. That part is directed by the mind. So what we're saying here is that make sure that what you desire in your spell or work of magic is something you will in your mind very strongly. You know, for for us as witches, we tend to use magic as the last resort because if it is the last resort, it's more important that it works. We've tried everything else. So that actually empowers our magic because it's like the last thing we have to turn to. And so our need is more urgent um, and that helps empower it. So this is where the will or the mind comes in. So think about that when you sit down Put the importance of what you need into the energy of that spell. That's your personal will power. Well, we've talked about before the um, the idea of raising the blood, or heating the blood. Heating the blood, right? Heating the blood is that part of the will too? Is that yeah? You're really emotional investment. Right, right. Uh, timing is important, um, whether it be the phase of the moon or the hour of the day or night. Um, timing is really important. It, it's, uh, you know, for example, um, when things are tranquil, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, for example, most people are asleep, not a lot of traffic here and there, the kind of your environment around you has gone peaceful and tranquil. It's a very good way to work because everything's receptive, so you don't have to work as hard to get your magic to to kind of merge and enter into things. Um, timing can be seasonal. You know, if, if the it's the waning part of the year and everything's withering away in the greenwood realm, you know, it's not a particularly good time to draw upon that greenwood energy um, for things that are gainful. It's better to attune yourself to the waning away uses of greenwood magic and, and use them to remove obstacles to uh, take away things that are undesirable in your life, body, mind, or spirit. So you have to work in the timing, the season, the hour, um, all these things. So look at the timing. How can you best add timing to your spell that makes sense with what's going on around you? Then imagery is next in that order. The more you can have imagery, the better you focus it's symbolically telling the powers that be what you need or what you want. So, for example, if you're doing a prosperity spell and prosperity to you is money, then you might use a dollar sign. Or you might take, um, you can get this sometimes, uh, the shredded money. They come in like little bottles and they're just you know, old money that the mint has destroyed. And, or, or you could use gold flakes or whatever as your symbol. And this is your imagery. So when you're doing your spell crafting, you have that in the center of your work, maybe in the center of the candles or uh, your altar place, so that when you look at that during your spell, you're seeing in your mind's eye and physically the imagery of prosperity to you. Healing, you might use a, uh, a caduceus. Um, that's a good, that's a good symbol, image, yeah. you know, or uh, yeah. the uh, Red Cross symbol or, you know, mm-hmm. something to focus on so that the imagery around you is such. Uh, sometimes people, even in the mundane, mundane, they'll put stickers up around the house, like um, 
maybe they're trying to be positive or whatever, so they might have a sticker on their mirror that says, smile or be happy today, or and they have one on their toaster, on their coffee pot, you know. Yeah. It's just a way of bringing imagery to bathe yourself and imbue yourself energetically with the thought of what it is you want to manifest. So that's another component of magic. And uh, then it would be, the next one would be direction. So direction is once you have enough energy and you have your imagery and everything, uh, then you want to be able to take all of that and move it towards what it is you want. And you don't want to be anxious about it. You should never do a work of magic that you wonder if it's going to work or hope it's going to work because that's going to weaken it. You should do the work of magic and when it's done, make the statement that it has already happened. Like if you do a spell for prosperity, when you finish the spell, you say, thank you for the prosperity that is generated now. Thank you for the prosperity that I have invoked now. Uh, That way you're telling the universe that it's done. You're not telling the universe, I hope this works. Um, Because then you're giving the universe an option. Um, I remember we did a spell one time and we had some new people in the coven and the spell was to uh, bring back one of our uh, coven mates who was in the military in a war zone and we wanted them to come back safe and sound. So we did that spell to uh, to bring them back safe and sound. And rather than finishing the time that they were supposed to be away, I can't remember the reasons, but they got released much, much earlier. So one of the new people in the coven called me up and said, you know, wow, did you hear he's, you know, he's, he's coming back already? And I said, yeah, I heard that. And they go, wow, that, that spell really worked. And I said, well, wasn't that the idea? She goes, yeah, but no, it really worked. And I said, well, of course, why would, we, why would we do a spell that we wouldn't think would work? You know, and that's that's what I'm talking about here with this idea of, of direction. You have to be invested in it, directed, and believe that it's already taken case. Well, no, it's already taken place. Yeah. I believe, but right. no. Right, no. Yeah. Um, that's the old saying, a witch doesn't believe, a witch knows. Think about that when you when you often... Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I couldn't avoid it. When you often say, oh, I believe that or I believe them, think about what you're saying about that. Because if you could replace it with no, it would be very important because that changes the whole right. idea about when you're thinking about it. Yeah. To, I've to, actually tried to introduce that into I do mundane conversation to say, to, to not use the word believe, I will use words like I acknowledge. Mm-hmm or I recognize. Right. Um, and someone will say, you know, do you believe in reincarnation? And I'll say, I acknowledge the concept of right. rather than saying I believe in it because what I'm saying is I'm making it real. I'm not uh, using a word like faith or belief. Right. Um, the other thing is with magic, more often than not, depending on, on the cycle of the moon in which you're using your magic, if it is lunar-based, um, you'll find that seven-day periods seem to be outcomes. Yeah. Like you do a spell on the new moon, and its result will be seven days later. Or because the, the phase changes. The phase seven has changed, so you're tying days. into. So you just think about right. that with your waning and, and waxing magic uh, on the seven-day cycles. And if you don't get results in the first seven-day cycle of that cycle, then repeat the spell. 
you know, re-empower it. Uh, don't think it didn't work. It just needs extra juju or time to uh, take effect. And, you know, you can always use solar energy as well. I mean, mm-hmm. lunar, lunar works, but the solar energy, then you look at the ideas of the, um, the changing of the tides. Uh, days of the week. Right, days right. of the week, exactly. Hours of the day. Right. Um, also, um, talking about that, uh, is why wouldn't your magic work? Uh-huh. What would, yeah, what would, yeah, what would be the cause of magic not taking place? Right. Yeah, my, my teachers, manifesting. Manifesting, right. my teachers told me there's only two reasons why your magic will fail. Either you did it incorrectly or a greater force opposed you. And those are the only two reasons your magic will fail you. Um, so if, if you're doing a spell to, to, to gain something and you don't gain that, uh, if you did it correctly with all the components and, and uh, methods of magic, um, then something greater opposed it. And I always tell people that with the lotto. People try to win the lotto. Well, the problem is that so are several million other people trying to win the lotto. So <laughs> yeah. you're pitting yourself against the wills of many, 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 many people. Um, and so that's that's one way in which it's problematic with magic to use uh, a spell to win the lotto because there there's a much greater force that's pushing back against you being the one that's going to win the lotto. Um, so these are the ideas. The last thing is balance. And uh, this is the most important thing to do works of magic that are practical, you know, that have a chance of succeeding. You know, for example, you know, I'm, I can never be six feet tall by (laughs) casting a spell. That's not going to happen. Greater force is opposing that. (laughs) Uh, That would be my genetics. Um, So you have to look at what is reasonable. You know, could I go out in the middle of January snowstorm with frozen land and do a spell to make a rose pop up? No. That's not going to work. Could I do that in the spring or summer? Sure. And it would quicken that because I'm working with what can actually happen. Mm-hmm. I could speed up that process with magic because I'm in that flow. It is a practical thing in that timing. Um, so look at that when you, the final component when you sit down is, is my spell practical? Can I actually make that, can that thing actually manifest in the world under these conditions? Mm-hmm. And then go ahead. Now, just because something is really difficult, don't dissuade yourself from doing that. Just dissuade yourself if it's impossible. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also um, in, in the component idea too is um, when you are, thinking of doing a spell, be sure that you're thinking it all the way through. For instance, if you want money and you feel you need money and you just do a quick money spell where, you know, you're saying, I need money, um, bring me, you know, $5,000 and uh, you do a quick money spell, but you're not really thinking about where that money could actually come from. It could end up coming from you being in a car accident. It could end up coming from your aunt dying and leaving you an inheritance. Right. It could come from ways that you didn't even really consider them uh, coming from. So be very clear about 
uh, how you are asking for this mani- this right. magic to manifest. Yeah, because that, that ties back into the idea of and, and harm none. That people put that into the spell, the idea that I don't want anyone harmed right. um, by the bestowing of this, you know. Say you do a spell for money, you would put in there, you know, I don't want anybody to to die and, and leave me an inheritance because I've initiated the spell. I don't want to be in an accident and get a settlement, you know, these things in mind when you sit down, because magic is kind of looking for the path of least resistance. And so these things will pop up. So you make, make sure you shore up these ideas. Yeah, same with the relationship. Because it's not, it's not like, you know, I dream of a genie or yeah. bewitch, yeah. you, know, you just wiggle, twiggle your nose and then this thing happens. It has to come from somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so just be careful about where it might come from. Now, the other thing that I think is important for you to mention, too, is the idea of the divine, the divine um, overview of asking for money. Oh. I mean, I know that's not directly related to that, um, but... Uh, well, that's just a little extra sort of writer, you know. I, yeah. I was taught, and people have different ideas on that. And again, we're just getting you to think on the show. We're not telling you what, yeah. what to think. Yeah, these are, just, these are, these are um, from our experiences the, and, and things that have happened. There was this... Um, I was once told by an old teacher of mine to never do a spell asking for money because she said that when you ask for money you're telling the gods i don't need you if i had the money i could make this happen on my own and so the the powers that be get offended that you've asked for a way in which you can do this without them um you know so that's just an interesting thing to play around in your head you know if if I do a spell and I call or a, you know a ritual or act of magic and I ask my deities to help me, um, you know, be prosperous in this or to bring money to me in some way, you know, I, am I saying to them, hey, I don't really need you. I just need you to give me the money and I'll use the money <laughs> to take care of my situation. You know, are you saying all goodness comes from you and so if you you know, bestow upon me the spoon of money, it's really you helping me through this tool of money to get this. So, you know, that's your intent. Um, it's just interesting, different ways of, of looking at that idea. Right. So we're we're coming to the end of the show, and we hope that this has been an informative um, little talk. And um, if you have any questions, you can always write to us uh, at... Um, you can write to Raven at Gramasi at Comcast.net. You can write to me at Stephanie-Taylor-127 at Comcast.net. Um, you can contact us on Facebook, messages, writers, you know, on Facebook, um, with any questions that might come up from listening to this show. And um, our next show is going to be, of course, on Wednesday, June 28th, we'll be off next week because we're still doing the show every other week. And um, we're not sure what the topic will be yet, but we'll announce that as time goes on. And also, you can visit our website, which is thehouseofgramasi.com, where we uh, I, I do post Raven's blogs. I post upcoming events and, and things that are of interest and um, other people's interesting things as well. Um, 
And uh, I think Raven had one more thing he wants to share. We can maybe go out on this. Yeah, let's do okay. that. This is a an excerpt from uh, my book, uh, Wicked Magic. <clears throat> Which so you can buy, wanna... by the way, on Ravenclaw. So I want to read this, and then we'll um, we'll close. To know, to will, to dare, to be silent. These are the words of the magical master. To know something, we must do more than satisfy our curiosity. We must study not only the concept, but those things that relate to the concept. To will, we must endure without yielding to defeat or discouragement. We must know our path and walk it despite its obstacles. To dare, we must be willing to accept the risks of disfavor and mistreatment. We must be true to the path we walk, whether the road is smooth or covered with pits and jagged rocks. To be silent, we must simply speak our truths without pretension or vanity. Beautifully said. So, so thanks for uh, listening tonight. Um, this has been Season of the Witch with Stephanie and Raven Gramasi. We hope to see you next time. When will that be? I said June the 28th. She's already said June the 28th. So Blessed be, folks. Take care. Have a good evening. And keep the magic flowing. <laughs>